Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And this is another show which is being conducted remotely during the stage three restrictions of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and I want to give a shout out to everybody in lockdown and also to prisoners and asylum seekers uh, in, in lockdown and anybody who's homeless as well. And, and also a shout out to our Aboriginal brothers and sisters as well, um, who, who do die younger, um, and who have who have um, other health issues? I wanted to to give a shout out to them as well. It's approximately 4:02, and I'm going to be doing a very special broadcast today to honour Uncle Ray Jackson, whose anniversary of his death falls on the 23rd of April. And Ray Jackson actually died on the 23rd of April 2015. And he, we, we are here to honour him today and to honour his great participation in the struggle. He is a Wiradjuri and working class warrior for justice and we are here to, to honour his legacy in regards to building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. He was a warrior, great-grandfather and recipient of the French Human Rights Award in 2013. They didn't even bother to give him an award, an award in Australia, but anyway... So, yeah, we're going to be speaking to later on in the show to Joseph Bouliese, who is a friend of Ray Jackson, has done a lot of work in regards to deaths in custody, and also we'll be speaking with Carolyn Jackson, daughter of, of Ray, and she'll be paying tribute to her father as well. And last but not, well, actually not last, but first up on the show, we're going to be speaking with April, who is one of the... The family members, she's a daughter of Auntie Tanya Day, who I wanted to put her on to this show as well to honour her. Um, she actually died in in the police cells of a horrific uh, brain hemorrhage, and as a result of as a result of uh, police corruption. And we're going to be speaking about the findings of the inquest with April and speaking to her about that and, and, and honouring Auntie Tanya. And so we'll, we'll speak to her shortly. But before we do that, I just wanted to 
quickly introduce to listeners in case they have never heard of Auntie Tanya just what, what's happened. So the coroner, um, because the, the actual findings were handed down on the 9th of April and they had to be live streamed because of the coronavirus. And the coroner, Caitlin English, has asked the public prosecutor to consider possible criminal negligence in death of Tanya Day. And, there, were, you know, all the family and friends were there. Um, we'll speak to April in more detail about this, but the coroner has asked the public prosecutor to consider possible criminal negligence in death of Tanya Day. And she's recommended... There's quite a few recommendations, and she made the recommendation after considering the evidence surrounding the 55-year-old Yorta Yorta woman's death. She recommended that... Um, she says, I believe an indictable offence may have been committed in connection to Miss Day's death. And she recommended that the Coroner's Act be amended to give coroners more control over the investigation conducted by police that informs an inquest. So there's been quite a lot of literature about this. Um, she also recommended that falls, falls risk assessment be placed in the Victoria Police Manual Guidelines for Holding People in Custody, that police training be updated with reference to the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and that both the Victoria Police and Beeline training manuals be subject to an independent human rights review. So the reason why I've invited April onto the show is that she can... So she can talk about this as a family member. And um, the Do and Time show actually attended quite a lot of the inquest. So I'm looking forward to talking to April shortly. And I'm hoping that'll be lined up soon. I think we're going to be hopefully going straight into her or perhaps going to announcement. We'll see. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Hello, April. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you. I just actually gave a little bit of an introduction. Did you were you did you manage to hear that or were you just put through now? Yeah. Oh, that's I've good. I didn't want to talk too much. Um, but April, yeah, I'm wondering if you could just start off by ch- just telling listeners what land you're from. Um, my, so my name is April. I'm the daughter of Tanya Day. Um, our mob is Yorta Yorta, Wemba Wemba and Brap Brappa. And our family um, is mainly around Echuca area. So that's where we're from. Thank you so much. And the reason why we invited you is just to honour, so that we can honour your mum. And she's actually um, on the same show as Uncle Ray Jackson, who, who has also passed away today, and he was also um, very committed to building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. So mm-hmm. I believe that um, Aunty Tanya died in hospital on the 22nd of December 2017. 
Can you just tell us just a little bit about the inquest findings and how you feel about it and whether, you know, talk about systemic racism perhaps? Yeah, well, um, I guess from our point of view, from the moment that mum was picked up on the train to the moment that she had passed away in the hospital, it was always racially motivated by the people that came in contact with her. Um, so the coroner had found that um, Sean Irvine, the V-line conductor, who actually woke mum up and deemed her unruly, which made the train conductor call the police, that he had acted in a racially motivated way. Um, uh, and she, I can't remember the exact words, but it was around the unconscious bias. Yes. So that was that was a huge win for us and for all our mobs that she was able to actually acknowledge that. Um, and Mum's case was actually the first case in the nation that uh, accepted systemic racism within the scope of an Aboriginal death in custody. So that was definitely a huge win and hopefully, you know, it also paves the way for other families that are fighting the same struggle that we are and makes it, you know, easier for them, for the coroner to accept that. Would, would you say that's a historic decision? Um, well, I guess it is because it hasn't, it hasn't been done before. I guess it's it's hard for me to say that because it's within our family and something that we have done. So it's harder to see the achievements that we've made because we're talking about ourselves. But um, people have said that, you know, it's a historical and it's a landmark decision. So mainly we wanted to do it, obviously, because we want justice for mum, but also we don't want any other Aboriginal person to go through what we have. Absolutely. And this is going to sound awful, but it's not going to bring her back, is it? No, it's definitely not. And that's the thing, you know, we can have all these recommendations made, um, but they are just recommendations. It's now up to those different organisations to implement those recommendations. And one of the things that we have said is, you know, our mother deserved dignity and respect, which Victoria Police didn't provide her at the time that she was most vulnerable. And we know that they are responsible for her death. We know that their decision-making was racially motivated as well, and they need to be held accountable. So we are happy that the coroner has referred them to the DPP, but, again, that's just a referral. It's now up to the DPP to take action on that. Absolutely. And would you agree that, you know, when when your mum was in the cells, she was not checked on on a regular basis? And the, no, the, no, she it? wasn't checked at all. No? Yeah, so they, they had actually made a decision amongst themselves um, to extend the checks out, which they're not allowed to do. It's in their policies and procedures. They're not allowed to do that. They're meant to check on mum every 20 minutes. Um, so then they had made a decision to, you know, check her um, every second check was going to be in the cell. And even then they didn't, they, they failed to do that. Um, they didn't even go into the cell to check mum until they had called the ambulance. As a radio broadcaster and as a human rights activist, that's really what make, makes my blood boil, to be honest. 
Yeah, and, and you know you can you can see the footage after Mum had hit her head. She had yeah. lost the right side of her body pretty quickly, and you know I, I'm not a doctor. Our family's not a doctor. Our supporters yeah. aren't, and you can you can clearly see that she is losing control of her body, and that's something seriously wrong. And then she's she's rolled onto the concrete floor where she looks like she's not even there anymore and she's got a blanket over her head. And even then, they still didn't go in there and they left her laying on that floor for hours. And going around saying that oh, all drunks act this way. Exactly. And that's that's just that natural behaviour for police is the, the racial bias side of it and also just how they stereotype our people on a daily basis. The crime of public drunkenness needs to be abolished in Victoria. But it's a bit too late for your mum, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the thing. If you know, it's a it's a huge failure from the Victorian government. Like they have, you know, made a promise to abolish the law. It's still not abolished. It's in the works of how to replace that with a public health alternative that you know, in the Royal Commission and out of one of them was Mum's Uncle Harrison Day. It was recommendation was to abolish public drunkenness back then. It was nearly thirty Correct. years ago. They didn't do it. If they had done it, Mum could still be here today. You know, there's been so many inquests over the years, um, April, and in all of these inquests, there seems to be an ongoing pattern. And in each of these inquests, and I've heard it all before, and I don't mean to sound cynical, April. But, you know, they say that the manual guidelines for holding people in custody, that police training be updated with reference to the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And, you know, it's good that, you know, that they're recommending that. The coroner recommends that. But how much longer can this go on? Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, what I said earlier, like they're just recommendations. It's up to the individual institutes to implement them. And like you have a look at how Victoria Police is. They stood up on that stand and each time they were asked, is is there anything that you would do differently knowing that Tanya Day will die? And they said no. So it's this... um, it's this way that they think that they're, they're not in the wrong. It's always about protecting themselves. It's about protecting their colleagues. And even though someone has died, they still won't admit their wrongdoing. So then when they're handed down these recommendations, it's like they don't take nothing seriously because they're not even taking a death of a grandmother seriously when they're the ones responsible for it. Absolutely. And it's it's interesting that the... Let me know if this is correct or not. From my understanding, when those findings were handed down, wasn't it that the coroner referred uh, the, the, the the police to prosecution? Yeah, so... Yeah, it's, it's really difficult to get the coroner to refer them to the DPP. Yes. Yeah, but there's never actually been a police officer that's been held criminally no. responsible. Not ever. And we have, like, over 435 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission. And out of those 435 innocent people, not one police officer has been held accountable. 
Uh, you know, that's like that's really shocking if you think like it that's uh, it's that's a national disgrace that we have mob dying in their custody, and there's just been no accountability for it. No accountability, and it's about police investigating police. And what I found quite interesting in the inquest is that um, Caitlin English often refers to the human right, the Victorian Human Rights Charter. She refers to the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And a lot of the time, you know, it, it, it appears that the police and V-Line simply didn't follow that protocol or recommendation in the Royal Commission to use prison as a last resort. Yeah, that, and like it, it started from V-Line. It, it started from Sean, Sean Irvine making that That's decision right. to wake Mum up and have her arrested. You know, if he, if he hadn't acted in such a racist way, Mum would still be here today. But then she's in police custody. And they could have made their own decision to drive her home or to take her to a medical facility. Like, yeah. they dropped mum off at the police station and immediately after, they went and picked up a white woman who was making a scene at the Cumberland Hotel. She was asking people for money and for food. And instead of them issuing her a fine for public drunkenness or arresting her, they actually drove her home. Oh. And... The excuse was, oh, we knew where she lived. She was able to give us some address in Castlemaine. It's like, okay, that's one excuse. But the officers on the stand had also said that there have been times that they have driven people home to Pyramid Hill, non-Aboriginal people. So it's okay for you to drive the same distance as what that is to Wachuka. But for Mum, the, the quickest option that they could think of was police so leave her there and to not monitor her yeah so there, there was a lack of monitoring there was a lack of duty of care and you know it it, it really does need it should it should be a public health issue um also i'm just having a look at the the statement that um you and your family wrote and yep. it's 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 a very powerful statement can you talk about that Yep. Uh, is it the statement after the submissions had been? Yes. Yes, that's right. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, like throughout the statement, you know, we have addressed how there's hundreds of people that are dying in police custody, and that no police officer has been held accountable. Um, and it's just to really make that clear to the rest of Australia and to the public that this isn't okay. Um, and as much as we welcome the coroner's recommendations. That's what they are, their recommendations. Um, and for us as a family and community, like we still need to keep the pressure on them to make sure that those police officers are held criminally responsible for mum's death. Um, and, you know, Sean Irvine, you know, I hope he can't sleep at night because he is one of the people responsible for someone dying in a police cell. Indeed. And, and in fact... You know, one of the, one of the things, just wanted, just in case listeners have tuned in and they don't know about um, what happened with Tanya, with Aunty Tanya, can you just quickly summarise? You know, in terms of um, the events. So she yeah. she was on the train. She fell asleep on the train, and as you said, V Line arrested her. 
and she ended up in the cell, didn't she, in custody, yeah. and she was left there, basically, to die. Yes, exactly. Um, the last moment that she was conscious was in that police cell. So, That's you right. know, they, they put her in there. They didn't monitor her effectively at all. They failed their duty of care. They didn't follow their policies and procedures. Um, and because of that, um, you know, like our mother left there unconscious and then died, you know, three days before Christmas. <laughs> and had she yeah. not been arrested, she'd still be alive today. Exactly. Um, you know, if that law had been abolished, she would have still been here. But, you know, Sean Irvine didn't wake a sleeping black woman on a train to deem her unruly, she'd still be here. And if Victoria Police had actually taken her home or to a doctor's or to a hospital, she'd still be here. Well, April, let's, let's make her death not be in vain. Yes, exactly. That's what we're trying to do. We have to keep fighting, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing, you know. We've finished the inquest, we've had the findings, but now like that's just one part of the fight and here's on to the next and that's, you know, advocating and campaigning against these police officers. Absolutely. And we have them held accountable. We have to stop the genocide. April, thank you so much for coming onto the program. We're gonna be speaking pretty soon with with the daughter of Uncle Ray, who, who died. Um, are you, do you know Uncle Ray? Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah amazing man, isn't he? Um, yeah, so we'll be speaking to her shortly. Do you have any final comments that, that you wanted to make before we move on? Um, mainly just to thank all of our supporters. Um, we've had a lot of wins in Mum's case, but that's also been because of the support that we've got and the power of, you know, community and mob being able to share mum's story and support us and advocate for her. So we just want to thank everybody for their support um, because of them. That's where and how we're able to get to where we are today for mum. April, that's lovely and, and, and I'm hoping we can have you on at some other stage to, to talk more about it and, and I'm sure the findings will be published pretty soon and people can have a read. Yep. No worries. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thanks a lot. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Whether it's with new content made DIY at home or with repeats of awesome shows, 3CR is with you, keeping you company through thick and thin. So don't touch that dial. 3CR, here to stay. G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong Stay safe and, of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. 
We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we were just speaking before with, with April, who was the daughter of Auntie Tanya Day, who died quite tragically um, in the police cells at, at Castlemaine. And we were just speaking to her about the findings of the inquest. This show, though, is dedicated to, to Auntie Tanya, but also dedicated to Uncle Ray Jackson. And we're going to be... We're doing this show to pay tribute to his life and legacy. And on the line now, we have Carolyn Jackson, his <clears throat> his daughter. Um, hello, Caroline. Hi, Marissa. How are you? Great to have you. Absolutely. It's that time again, isn't it, Carolyn? It's the yes, it is. memorial, and we're doing a memorial show for, for your dad. Mm. And thank mm -hmm. you so much for taking the time to come on. Right. Thank you for having me. So, um, maybe if you can just spend maybe a couple of minutes just talking about mm -hmm. your dad and, and talking a little bit about his life's work and what yeah, you, how sure. you feel about it. Well, it'll be five years to the day um, on Thursday, the 23rd, that dad passed. And um, to this day, his um, work is still... Um, progressing and a lot of people are out there now that are acknowledging his work and um, and others are still are carrying on his work so which is a good thing so his legacy is not fading it's, it's, it's stronger than ever um, within the five years that he has passed he has been honored as you know the doctor of letters um, one of the his achievements um, also to um, They've formed a, a doctor, um, sorry, Professor Joseph. I cannot pronounce his surname properly. Oh, yes. Yeah, Marissa. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Anyway, I can never, ever, ever pronounce it right. And I don't that's want to do right. no justice by doing it, saying it wrong, pronouncing it wrong. But um, he actually finished off um, a website that Dad and, and he um, and other people from the university tried um, and finished, which was called um, a website called Deathscapes. So it's um, it's a website that's going to be used is going to be used in universities to teach um, those who are studying um, yes. um, to be um, lawyer as lawyers and also within criminal law, so um, they can see the other side of justice. So where they're supposed to be justice, but haven't have families haven't received justice, they only look at the negative part of it but they don't see the other side of it where people are, and families are being unjust. So that's really, really, it's, that's a major achievement. So, uh, you know, uh, um, anniversary, I mean, sorry, anniversaries, universities are aware, um, yep. and therefore they're forwarding this onto um, students. And also, um, yeah, who are studying criminal law, which is, which is fantastic. So there's people out there that are still carrying on Dad's work, and it's progressing. Which is good. So, I'm glad. and also too, um, you know, and people like you, Marissa, and your and your radio station, and and everyone else that keeps his memory alive and still going, and his work, which is really good as well. So, I mean, five years to this day, and it's and people, he's still in people's people's memories and in their hearts. So, um, absolutely. Is, Look, know, I, I met I met your dad actually in 2013. When I was in Sydney, um, supporting the TJ, TJ Hickey's family 
remember when um, mm-hmm. the sister of, sorry, not the, sorry, yeah, the not the sister, the, the one of the relatives of, of TJ mm. Hickey was sexually harassed yeah. by the police at a 21st mm-hmm. birthday party. Wow. And all the the family members were being harassed and they and taken mm. to court by the police. And your dad mm. was a big part of that. And I actually went to Sydney to record some interviews outside court and, and I just remember your dad and I just sat together and and talked for hours and I did so much recording and then he gave permission for me to air it and I've still got those recordings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dude, Dad did a lot of... Um um, he he, you know, aired on a lot of radio stations. Um, yeah, did. I think, yeah. um, and also did interviews with SBS and NITV, and um, you know, they did a lot of coverage um, with Dad's work in past and present. So, um, but your yeah, family he, must you you must you and your family must miss him. I mean, he's a grandfather. He's a you know, his grandchildren. Well, yeah. Is a is a great grandfather. Um, is a grandfather, great grandfather, and um, and we just found out the other day that um, uh, my niece, which is Dad's um, granddaughter, is having a boy. So it's the first one in the family of the grandchildren, and the oh wow! So that would have been he would have been chuffed to hear about that. But um, but yeah, exactly. We all miss him. He's um, you know we always used to be able to pick up the phone and call him and. We don't. It's hard because you still feel like picking up the phone to call him. So, but even though he's not around, but it's around just in spirit, we feel he still is. And um, it's not a day that doesn't go by. We don't think about him or don't talk about him. Yeah. So, and um, yeah, but um, it's good because I just get on. You know, we just get on the net and we just, you know, we want to hear Dad's voice or see him. We just go on the website and. You know, you can see him speaking That's right. and that. So it's like, yeah, so it's really, really good. But um, yeah, we good. do miss him dearly. Yeah, we do miss him dearly. And, um, yeah, and we always think about now, we talk about, you know, if he was here now to this day, what would he be thinking and what would he be doing? And would he be with this virus, you know, as you know, Dad would have oh, been. Oh, yeah. He would have been, he would have been 70. Um, he just had his birthday. We just had his birthday on the 27th of March, and he would have been 79. So we were yeah. thinking, now, um, what would have happened if he was told, you know, over 70 people, you know, 70 to stay home? Because uh, as the government say, he would not. He would I not stay home. I don't think so. <laughs> no, he would not. Carolyn, can you see him locked down? I don't think he would do it. No, well, as you know, well, he nah. passed away from pneumonia and um, he worked and worked and worked, since, you know, till the night before he passed away, you know, so it wouldn't have stopped him. He'll be still out there helping families, finding justice, you know, so, yeah, it wouldn't make any difference with that man, but um, that's what no. we admire about him. That's what we love about him so much and we miss about him. So, he wouldn't have, because um, he, yeah. he chaired the last ISTA meeting and then passed away after that. Correct, yeah. Well, he did his last, he sent off his last emails. It would have been about 11 o'clock at night. And, um, yeah, the next morning he was, you know, he was he was gone. So, so but, yeah, but peacefully, we're hoping. Well, we're pretty sure he did. He was in his sleep. But, yeah, but he still, till 11 o'clock at night, done his last emails to ISTA, and that was it. 
you know, send off his newsletters like he usually does, emails off his, you know, newsletters and that's it. And that was the end of him. But, yeah, like I said, he was around today. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. I'm pretty sure we'll meet again one day. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah, but but apart from that, yeah, we we definitely do miss him dearly. For sure. um, Yeah. Okay, well, Carolyn, thank you so much for for coming onto the program. Is is there any final comments you want to make about your dad before we go? Um, Just to say that, um, you know, I just want to thank you supporters out there and um, and also to Easter Sydney, Easter Melbourne, also Maine. Um, Thank you to you also, Marissa, and your um, radio station. And um, to say thank you for your support and also to keeping his memory going and um, and his, you know, his work. So, and if yeah. anyone wants to, you know, look at anything or wants to read up on his future work, I mean, his work that he has accomplished, please get on the, to the site, especially on the website, Deathscapes. Um, there's a lot of information on there too. So, and that also talks about families that are unjust and... And to this day, trying to find some kind of, um, you know, justice for those families. So there's other people that are working in the back of the scenes that are still, you know, following Dad's work. So hopefully this will still keep on going and going and going and people keep the fight. Absolutely. Yeah. So get, get on to www.deathscapes.org and there's lots Correct. and lots of case studies in relation to not just... Deaths in custody, but also um, right. femicide, Indigenous femicide as well. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. All right. No, thank you, Marissa. Thank you so much. And until next year, I mean, I'm sure you and I will talk before next year. But Oh, definitely. Yes, definitely. We'll definitely will talk soon. <laughs> and we will continue the legacy. We all have to continue the fight. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Thank you, Marissa. Thank you. Take care of yourself. You too. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 3CR believes that reporting of the ongoing issues surrounding COVID-19 is in the public interest and that our listeners tune in to hear in-depth analysis from a progressive perspective. We also know that the saturation of reporting in the mass media can lead to an increase in fear, anxiety and mental distress. If you are feeling distressed, we encourage you to take some time out from all media coverage. And most importantly, reach out if you are needing help. Call Lifeline on 131 114. Get LGBTIQ plus counselling between 3pm and midnight by calling Switchboard on 1800 184 527. Call Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800. 3CR, radio for the community since 1976. When your back's against the wall, gotta look deep within yourself, gotta rise above it all. When no one's there to comfort you, gotta push your fears aside, rely on your inner strength, find Viruses like flu and coronavirus 
spread when tiny droplets from coughs and sneezes land on surfaces that others touch. You can help reduce this risk by coughing or sneezing into your elbow or upper arm, or use a tissue and put the tissue in the bin straight after. Then wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.36. We were just running a little bit late there. We previously just spoke with Carolyn Jackson in regards to honouring um, Uncle Ray Jackson and Ray remained a tireless fighter for Australian and other First Nations peoples and an uncompromising internationalist holding up a mirror to settler colonialist violence in all its national and global ramifications. Hello, Joseph. Welcome to the program. Hello, Larissa. Good to talk with you again. You too, you too. Could you just briefly introduce yourself and, and just talk about how how you met Ray? Sure. Um, I first met Ray in, in 2000 when uh, I began to attend the ISJA fora and meetings and was immediately impressed, really, and, and in awe of Ray's incredible dedication focused work on social justice across the broad spectrum of issues. And from that point on, I invited him repeatedly to the university um, as keynote to uh, contribute to classes and seminars on anti-racism, anti-colonialism, all those sorts of issues. And then we worked on the Aboriginal passport ceremonies that he staged together. And he also came on board the Deathscapes Project, uh, but unfortunately, he died before um, it could, he could see it to completion. So his legacy is really ongoing, and uh, we, we, we just feel so proud to have worked with him, Deathscapes, and we miss him terribly. Indeed, we do. And in fact, when the symposium launch took place last February, I believe, didn't we have in Sydney? Didn't we have the hat at the, his hat at the front and all the posters? We did. We had his hard hat with all the um, medals, uh, the the, the um, badges. We had um, the French Human Rights Prize medal that he was awarded. Um, so we had memorabilia that was really evocative of the extraordinary work that Uncle Ray did. And, of course, uh, Carolyn Jackson um, and uh, her sisters were there to uh, mark uh, the, the, the legacy of Uncle Ray at that launch at the um, the settlement in, in Redfern. I think what I really liked about Uncle Ray was that he included everybody, and he'd say black, white, or brindle, it doesn't matter. That's what was extraordinary about him, and I think that's why I was I was so drawn to to Uncle Ray, and that was he wasn't a one issue man. He had such a grasp of the way in which. All people who are oppressed, who experience structural racism, who experience institutionalised disenfranchisement, uh, regardless of their gender, their ability, disability, age, any, you know, any of those categories, he was up to include and to fight for them and to get justice for them. And uh, I'm, I'm not just saying that in, in a rhetorical way. He actually took no, on no. board the full spectrum of issues. So, for example, um, you know, one of the last cases he was working uh, to get justice for was um, 
Veronica Baxter, the transgender Indigenous woman who died uh, in police custody. He was fighting for um, the Palestinian issue in terms of um, the settler colonial operations of the Zionist state in Israel, and he sent Aboriginal passport ceremonies to the camps there, the refugee camps, the Palestinian refugee camps. Of course, he did extraordinary landmark work in Indigenous deaths in custody. He worked with the police to try to educate them about racist practices and institutionalised racism. I mean, you, you just it's, it's a catalogue of achievements, uh, really, in terms of working across the spectrum. Absolutely, and, he, and in fact, a lot of the interviews that Uncle Ray did on, on our show, and, and it really coincides with what you're talking about, Joseph, is in regards to the way that he helped the, the bereaved families of, of people that had died in custody, for example, Mr Clark, Mr Briscoe, um, uh, TJ Hickey. Yes. It, it, the list goes on. Absolutely. And, and the way in which he helped, it was a material help, again, across so many different practices and ways, precisely because there was the material activist help and legal help that he would organise for the families uh, who had experienced the trauma of of a death in custody. He would arrange fundraising drives to enable them to come, say, to Sydney, because a lot of them were from uh, rural or remote communities, to pay for the the extraordinary expenses. Because, as you know, there are no funds in the coronial system to help people coming from those remote communities or rural communities. And so he would take care of that. Uh, So he'd secure legal representation, but he also made incredible incursions in the actual structure of the way in which uh, an Aboriginal death was handled, and he installed Indigenous protocol so that the family would be reassured that the body of their loved one was treated with the utmost, utmost respect. And he actually achieved a significant breakthrough because previously... Uh, the coronial system would not allow a family to uh, come and say, view uh, an autopsy or, uh, you know, be involved in the process in any way. And and, and when Uncle Ray uh, made an attempt to change that, people said to him, you've got to be joking, there's no way you're going to be able to change that. But through his petitions and his cogent arguments, he managed to change the system so that a family representative could be present to make sure that the body of their loved one was treated with dignity and respect. So he made real structural changes in those ways. He really did. And the thing that I found really fascinating is that the way he spoke sometimes was like a medical examiner. Like, yeah. we, I do an interview, for example, like even using Mr Clark as an example... Mm. or even Mr Briscoe, and he'd say, oh, well, you know what, I'm going to talk about the autopsy, the findings of the autopsy. And he'd rattle off the findings like he was actually there. It was just incredible. He had an an encyclopedic mind, and uh, uh, so he had that clear analytical mind, and he could sort of slice through all the legalese, and that's why he was so powerful in, in, in making those interventions for structural change within those racist institutions, but he also had an incredible fortitude and stamina. So often, for example, the family, of course, could not 
bear to see their loved one in an autopsy coronial setting, and he would stand in their place and then report back to them. So there was an extraordinary inner strength and generosity of spirit there. Absolutely. And I remember he actually wrote a couple of open letters to politicians, didn't he? He did, to the Prime Minister's. And, you know, talking about uh, refugees and asylum seeker issues, he would pen... uh, His last um, letter was to the then um, Prime Minister Abbott, prior to that to Rudd, and he would repeatedly say in those letters, and I've got copies of those letters, he would say, you are not speaking in my name in uh, holding these people, um, refugees and asylum seekers in offshore detention or onshore detention and really in violating their basic human rights to claim asylum, and he would say, uh, as an Indigenous elder, uh, I'm extending them welcome and hospitality to my country, which was, you know, gradually country. So he was fearless in penning those letters, and they were, they were impassioned, but really clear, and as you said, you know, <laughs> forensic in their break, you know, articulating of the arguments of what was at stake, even though he was incredibly compassionate for the people he was speaking on behalf of. Very much so, and, and in fact, the passport ceremonies really reference a history in which papers and certificates and the lack of these documents, um, you know, was, was more about, you know, it was about the, the sovereignty, wasn't it, that it was never seen? It was. You're so right. He saw the Aboriginal passport ceremonies that he uh, initiated, and, and just to sort of clarify that there were previous Aboriginal passports, but they were really an attempt, say, you know, from the time of Gary Foley in the Tent Embassy in Canberra in the early 70s, to uh, create these alternatives to um, the Australian passport that would be used when people were travelling. I think Gary Foley actually used it, tried to use it when he went um, overseas. Um, uh, yeah. Uncle Ray's pa- uh, Aboriginal passports were actually an internal matter, and how yeah. they worked was to reassert the fact that there are 500 Aboriginal odd, you know, odd nations in this country, that they have never ceded their sovereignty and that non-Indigenous people thus, as they move across those various nations, need to carry an Indigenous passport and ask for permission from the appropriate elders to enter country. Um, uh, and he saw that as a sign of, un- of exercising Indigenous sovereignty and exercising the sense that they have not given up land. Uh, and their rights to that land, regardless of what the government and the settler state says. Well, that's right. And, and in fact, just so in case listeners have just tuned in, we've just, we're listening to doing an interview about Ray Jackson, who we're honouring his legacy, and he, he died on the 23rd of April 2015. But really looking at the fact that historically that we had missions from 1788 onwards, we had genocide where Aboriginal children were taken away. But not only that, we had the stolen wages. We also had um, the the Aboriginal Protection, the Aborigines Protection Board, didn't we, Joseph, where, you know, people had to have a travel permit. And so it's it's quite important, really, that, that a passport, um, an Aboriginal passport is given, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And I mean, what's powerful, so symbolically and politically powerful about Uncle Ray's Aboriginal passports is that they've 
appropriated, if you like, a settler technology like the permits that you're talking about and the dog tags and all the other uh, documentation that controlled and surveilled Indigenous subjects and really regulated their lives in every turn and uh, regulated their freedom of movement, etc. He appropriated that, indigenises it, and uses it in order to assert unceded sovereignty. Um, and so it completely sort of flips it on its head as an act of agency. Absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, that's why it, it was good to mention the the passport because it was... It, I mean, his, a large part of Ray's, Uncle Ray's work was in regards to building the movement to stop Aboriginal, Aboriginal deaths in custody. But that wasn't all. There were lots of other things too. That's right. Well, look, he was foundational um, in uh, helping draw up the uh, Aboriginal um, deaths in custody recommendations from the Royal Commission. He uh, was militant in uh, arguing for that Royal Commission. So he had, he had all of that foundation. And, of course, he was co-founder of Don Clark of Indigenous Social Justice Association. I mean, there were so many uh, landmarks firstly established. But the uh, indication of the largeness of Uncle Ray's heart was that he encompassed what we were saying right at the beginning, and that was the broad spectrum of subjects who were victims or who were targets of racism and some form of institutionalised violence. Um, and, uh, you know, to give you an example, with the Indigenous passports, they were for non-Indigenous people in order to mark their allegiance to Indigenous nations, Indigenous country, but they were also ways in which, as I said, he exercised hospitality, to refugees and asylum seekers uh, who were caught uh, in those dreadful, violent prisons of the offshore and yeah. inshore, onshore detention centres. But he also sent uh, the passports to people like uh, Julian Assange uh, via his father because he felt that Julian Assange had been really betrayed by the state. The state has washed its hand of all responsibility and... Uh, he, he, he did that. He did it with Mamdu Habib, who was wrongfully imprisoned for five years in Guantanamo. And he actually invited oh, yes. uh, Mamdu and Saba Habib to the uh, first Indigenous passport ceremony and presented it to him on stage. And it was like quite a moving. This is a man who experienced five years of the most horrific torture within yes. those CIA black sites in Guantanamo, completely abandoned by the Australian state. Absolutely. And really, you know, yeah, you know, a broken man when he came back and sort of had to begin to put himself together again. And he, he spoke to me at that ceremony and said that that gesture of Uncle Ray's and made him feel that there was a sense of belonging and healing for everything he'd experienced. Yeah. Yes, he wrote a book called My Story, and I remember interviewing him. Yeah. Actually, yes. That's, that's right, that's right. So that, See, this that is gives what you I mean. an indication he, he, of how he covered so many different bases. Yeah. And you know, if I can just say, when you uh, yeah. made you know, your introduction, your tail end um, comments to the lovely um, Carolyn Jackson, uh, his daughter, you, you marked him as an internationalist. And um, uh, I think that that's one of the hallmarks of, of his greatness, that he could see the larger picture and see how local and national issues connected with broader international forces and relations of power. That's exactly right. And I only wish 
that, you know, I'm not suggesting that that without Ray we can't do anything because we have to keep fighting and we have yeah. to continue that legacy. But I only wish there were more people out there like him. Well, look, I mean, he, uh, Uncle Ray was irreplaceable. and Absolutely. There's, there's no way anyone can fill his boots. But as you say, if we're going to try and do justice to Uncle Ray's legacy, we're beholden to continue in our own modest ways the extraordinary social justice work and the path that he carved out for us to follow. That's exactly right. It's approximately 4.52 and you're with the Do and Time show and I'm interviewing Joseph Bugliese about um, Ray Jackson's legacy. So would you say that um, that Ray was was involved a lot with the unions? He was. I mean, he, he worked on the waterfront, uh, as you probably know, and uh, he, he told me, you know, that that was like a life lesson for him in terms of seeing the sorts of uh, injustices and inequities that uh, uh, workers have experienced. So he was a, a militant unionist fighting for workers' rights. And I'll, I'll, do, I'll make you laugh. Um, on occasions, um, when Sivandrini Pereira, uh, you know, with whom we worked on the deathscapes, uh, when she'd come to Sydney, we'd invite him out for dinner and have a, you know, a, a celebratory dinner. Um, he would come working his high-vis best. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> As a mark yeah. of solidarity with workers. So it was something that... And that's why we also had his hard-hat helmet um, uh, yeah. at, at the launch, because there was a really strong commitment to the workers' movement and workers' rights. And lastly, because we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I think really just to sum it all up, that justice drove um, Uncle Ray and he never compromised under pressure from police courts or, and prison authorities. And I think towards the end of his life, the police really gave him a hard time, and, and didn't they, um, in regards to the TJ Hickey march? In particular to the TJ Hickey march. It's awful. They were furious that he would not let that go and that he continued <laughs> to seek justice. For because the, it wasn't an accident. But exactly. It was a police killing. Of course it was a it police was... killing. And um, we need if to If that chase had not happened, that. if that racialised chase had not happened, TJ would still be alive today. Yeah, it's it's pretty important. Joseph, we've got about two minutes left. Um, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's always lovely to have you. You're welcome. And lovely to be talking about the great, late Uncle Ray. And uh, all I can say is we miss him terribly, but he's also an extraordinary inspiration for us to keep doing the work from our own local positions. Very much so. All right, Joseph, keep up the good work. And if people want to look at the Deathscapes um, website, jump on www.deathscapes.org. That would be great. And you could see a whole gallery there, including one that plays homage to leading figures like Uncle Ray and others who have been inspirational to us as social justice activists. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bye, Marissa. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. And so we were talking. Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. And we've got 
about a minute left and we're going to be going out with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella from the Rumpy Band. Thank you to all our guests and a cheerio to Peter and Rob who are a part of this show in spirit and thanks a lot for their help. All right. Well, stay strong in this lockdown and take care of each other and until every Monday from 4 or 5 for the Doing Time show. Stay tuned. Thanks a lot. Bye. Sisters